Somebody's not happy. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel. Specifically, Matthew chapter 27. Reading verses 57 through 66. Excuse me. I have allergies this time of year and This is the word of the Lord. Uh, there are no errors in the original language in which, in which it was written, in this case Greek in the New Testament, and it remains to us the authoritative word of God in faithful translations of the original like I'm reading from. So listen to God speak to you. 50, 70, 66. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, Arimathea rather, named Joseph who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given over to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, uh, uh, hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb, and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary, sitting opposite the grave. Now, on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, the deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, Give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, Take a guard, go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your precious word. We pray that you would help us to understand uh, or begin to understand how precious it really is. Uh, Not just your written word, but your preached word, which you have promised to bless and speak through um, as the preacher, uh, the prophet of your church. Would you please do that now? Would you please uh, empower me, grant me unction, uh, and and bring glory to yourself, Lord Jesus, and the Father and the Spirit through this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, you kids uh, may or may not be in this situation, but uh, depending on how old you are, but when you were little kids, if you're a little bit older now, this is not true of you, but little brothers and sisters... Maybe it may still be true of in your house. But when you get into a car, and when your mother and father get into a car, and they're bringing uh, a, a little child along, either you when you were smaller or your brother and sister, who are still small, very small, they do several things usually, your parents do, to protect, your ch- to protect the small children. Okay? Several things. So I'm just going to list them off for you. First of all, they put the child, uh, any little children in the back seat, not in the front seat. They're supposed to anyway, by law, I believe. Um, and that's, uh, and that provides more protection for the child, uh, in case there is an accident or something like that. Secondly, the child is, uh, all parents place their children, good parents, place their children in a, uh, in a booster seat, or a, uh, a, uh, yeah, what are those called? A, Car seat. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. A car seat. Um, and a car seat uh, protects uh, the little baby or infant uh, or toddler that's in the car seat just by the way the car seat is designed. So that's a form of protection. Then the car seat is attached to the main seat with a seat belt. 
that, uh, that winds in and through the car seat and then is tightened so that, that car seat is not going to go anywhere, no matter what happens <clears throat> to the car. And then the doors of the back seat and the front seat are locked as well. So you see there are multiple, that means many, by the way, precautions that are taken to make sure that a baby doesn't get out of the car when the car is in motion. Okay? Well, just as there are multiple precautions that parents take to protect babies from being, uh, from leaving the car while it's moving, in the account that I just read to you children, Multiple precautions are taken, many precautions, several precautions that are mentioned here, are taken to make sure that Jesus' body, his, the, body the dead body of Jesus, does not leave the tomb that he is placed in. And this is, I think, intentional on the part of God, through his providence, that he worked these things out, uh, so that many precautions would be taken to prevent Jesus' body from leaving the tomb once it was placed in the tomb that he was placed in. So, and that has very important implications for um, for uh, our faith and the potential faith of others who don't believe. So you children need to listen carefully to this, okay? You're going to learn, I hope, quite a bit about uh, what uh, what happened to Jesus after he died, what happened to his body, and why that's important. The atoning work uh, that Jesus was sent to accomplish, uh, atoning for our sins, is now over. Um, in one sense, it's over, I should say. Uh, the the uh, uh, propitiating of our sins, the, uh, the placating the wrath of God, which was once directed towards believers on account of our sin, has been uh, done already through the life uh, and the taking of the life of Jesus, the offering up of the life of Jesus by our Savior Himself. Divine uh, justice and mercy have embraced each other, if you will. That's a that's an allusion to something that's said in the Psalms that I just happened to read this morning. Just happened to be reading it this morning. Interestingly, uh, ju- God's good justice and His mercy uh, could come together and embrace one another, so to speak. The veil bar- barring the way into God's holy presence. In the, in the tabernacle that was in Jerusalem had been torn asunder, ripped right down the middle, uh, indicating that the way to God was now open, that uh, as a result of uh, what Jesus had accomplished in his death on the cross and his life prior to that death. And the incarnate, that is the enfleshed Lord of heaven and earth himself, is now hanging dead on Calvary's cross after his last breath. And that brings us to the account that we read today. There are two things I want to highlight uh, that are highlighted by Matthew in this uh, section of Scripture. The first is this. We're going to look at uh, the actions, uh, the fact that the actions of Joseph of Arimathea helped prevent the possibility of Jesus' resurrection being faked. And secondly, in this passage, we see the actions of Jesus' enemies uh, helped prevent the possibility of Jesus' resurrection being faked. So first, the actions of Joseph of Arimathea helped prevent the possibility of Jesus' resurrection being faked. We see this in verses uh, 59 through 60. Uh, yeah, through 60. A little bit about Joseph. Um, you need to know he was a very wealthy uh, and prominent member of the Sanhedrin. That is the Jewish council of Jewish religious leaders who were responsible for the spiritual care of the people of Judea, of all Jews, actually, not just in Judea, but outside of Judea as well. He was a member of that council, along with Nicodemus, by the way, who I'm going to make mention of here in a little bit. But they were members of the Sanhedrin, and, uh, and Joseph was, and he was, by this point in time, a true, but pr- probably a recent disciple of Christ. He'd probably recently come to Christ. Uh, 
And uh, we know from what the uh, other uh, texts, uh, accounts, and the other Gospels say that he was one, obviously uh, all disciples of Jesus believe this, believe that the reign of God uh, uh, was coming to, was, was soon going to be established uh, through the ministry of Jesus and the work that Jesus accomplished on earth. The reign of God in heaven and on earth, or on earth in a, in a new way, with Jesus as the messianic king. That uh, And Joseph may not have understood what I just said there entirely. But he understood God is going to have his way, and it's going to be good, and it's going to be through the work of Jesus. And God's going to reign in a new way, uh, in a more intimate way with God's people. Uh, and as a disciple of Christ, he was one who obviously had not consented to the Sanhedrin's plan to put, have Jesus put to death. He was opposed to that. And we learn that from Luke's account, uh, 20, Luke 23:51. But he was, at this point, he was still, and this is why he was probably a young believer, he was a secret disciple. We learn this from John's account in John 19:38. Nobody knew that he was a believer at this stage of the game, prior to this account. But now, by the time we reach this point, as a result of his newfound love for Jesus and trust in Jesus, he is about to find the courage that he needs with the grace, help of the grace of God to make his allegiance to Christ public. Publicly known. What did he do to help prevent the faking of Jesus' resurrection by uh, those who would uh, wish to fake it, or may wish to fake it. Well, he did a couple of things. First of all, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, asked to take possession of the body of Jesus that was still hanging on the cross at this point in time. You see, Pilate wanted, not Pilate, <laughs> Pilate didn't care, Joseph wanted to see Jesus buried properly in accordance with Jewish custom. Again, we know this from John's account, John 19. Rather than allowing Jesus' body to be unceremoniously dumped into a common pit, a grave, if you will, a common grave that was a pit dug in the ground uh, with other recently executed criminals, rather than having that be uh, the fate of Jesus' body, uh, Joseph wanted Jesus to receive a proper Christian burial, uh, Jewish burial, I should say. And he deeply desired this because of his faith. Because he loved and trusted in Jesus in a saving way. You see, true faith in Christ causes anyone to change. To want to honor God and Christ in particular. And he wanted to honor Christ by the way his body was dealt with and handled after death. Pilate grants Joseph's request to take possession of Christ's body. We read that in verse 58 of our text. He then promptly removes Jesus' body, and that's why I say he's, he's, he's out there on Calvary, probably with the help of others, um, but in a public, very public place, removing Jesus' body from the cross. At that point, you know, he's, everybody knows, I say everybody knows, enough people know that everybody can know in a short period of time that Joseph of Arimathea is a follower of Jesus. And so he has bodies, he has Jesus' body removed from the cross, and with the help of Nicodemus, again we learn this from one of the other accounts, he prepares Jesus' body for burial uh, in accordance with Jewish custom. Uh, they would have uh, first washed Jesus' body to remove whatever dirt, blood, or sweat uh, was there on, on his body as a result of what he'd gone through. They then, we are told, wrapped Jesus' body in fine white linen that had been coated with roughly 100 pounds of a mixture of aloes and myrrh. Very heavy uh, weight that was uh, of, of, of uh, this gooey substance, probably, that was um, placed uh, either uh, around or in uh, the, um, the, the linen wrap to cover Jesus up. The care, and this took great time, uh, uh, I say time, it took time, it took uh, uh, care, and you can, you can envision uh, Joseph and, uh, and uh, Nicodemus 
attending to the body uh, with gentleness and care. But that care that they uh, expressed and that Old Testament Jews took and that early New Testament Christians also took and that most all Christians have taken up until the last maybe 50 years, maybe even less than that, the care with which Old Testament Jews and New Testament believers uh, show uh, in preparing the bodies of the dead for burial points to the sacredness of the human body. Even after the departure of the soul from that body. People, well-meaning folks, uh, but it irritates me, say at funerals, well, uh, she's not here, that's not her, that's not him uh, in the casket. It is her it is him in the casket. In fact, in one of the other accounts, rather than the body being of Jesus being referred to as it, uh, I think it's Mark's account, he's referred to as he. Took him down from the cross. Uh, and so on. Anyway, the point is, this care that, uh, that uh, Joseph and Nicodemus were taking uh, and that uh, is seen throughout Scripture, a biblical example, points to the sacredness of the body. And why is the human body sacred? Because it is part of who we are as creatures made in the image of God. That's part of the image of God is our bodies. It's not just our souls and our, or our spirits, which are one and the same thing. It's our body as well. We are body and spirit. That is what constitutes the image of God. Now, the implication of this, by the way, is that the bodies of believers are to be treated with dignity and respect once the soul has left. I believe this is one of the reasons why cremation is never commended to us in Scripture. There's one example that I know of where somebody was actually burned, but it's not in any way commended to us. Burning does not show respect. Indeed, it's arguably a desecration of the body. In addition to this, by the way, burning a believer doesn't convey the right imagery, if you will, about the departed, the, the departed's final destination to those who are left behind. A believers don't go to the hot place. They don't go to the place of fire and burning. They go to heaven. And uh, it, uh, it is improper to, uh, to burn a body uh, because it points, uh, to some, uh, uh, it points to a lie, really, rather than to the truth of uh, what has transpired when the soul departed. Joseph then placed Jesus' body uh, in a tomb that he himself had purchased and that he had hewn out of the of the rock. You can you can imagine what this was like, um, and we don't know where it was, but uh, obviously if it's hewn out of a rock, it's a it's probably on the side of a hill, uh, a rock outcropping on the side of a hill, and uh, burrowed into. You can imagine the time that took to make a a place that's big enough to place a body in the bodies of others, because it was his uh, for his family probably. Um, not just one person, but several. And Joseph places Jesus in that tomb, by the way, in fulfilling the scriptures, that his death would be with a rich man, Isaiah 53, 8, I think. Anyway, um, this tomb, we are told, uh, in John's account, was near the place where he was crucified. So it was near Golgotha, not far away. It was a tomb that had never been used before, as I already said, and it was one that had been, again, hewn out of solid rock with only, obviously, only one way in. And here, now, is the thing that Joseph did, getting to the point uh, that I'm making in this first point, the thing that Joseph did that helped prevent anyone from possibly faking a resurrection of Jesus. What he did was, and he didn't do it by himself, you can be sure of that, he had a giant stone rolled in front of the tomb's entrance, that one single entrance into the tomb where Jesus was placed. Of this stone and its placement, uh, Craig Keener in the NIV, or excuse me, uh, IVP Bible background commentary writes, the stone rolled in front of the tomb was a carved disc-shaped stone, probably about three feet in diameter, uh, rolled into place in a groove and moved back from the entrance only with great effort, end quote. 
This stone undoubtedly weighed many hundreds of pounds, maybe even over half a ton. We don't know for sure, but it was big. The text makes that quite clear. Now, I doubt that Joseph had this large stone rolled in front of Jesus' tomb out of concern that somebody might try to steal Jesus' body away. Now, he might have. It's possible. But I kind of doubt it. doesn't make any difference. But um, uh, the fact of the matter, probably the reason, uh, more likely the reason that Joseph did this is, first of all, it's what you did with tombs that were built into a rock. You, into a rock, you covered them up. Just it's it's matter of uh, again respect for the dead, if you will. But also keeps uh, would he probably did that to keep wild, hungry animals out of the tomb, uh, and also to keep the curious out. Oh, and also perhaps to keep the smell in. Those are all reasons uh, why he probably did it. Uh, and again, don't know if he thought about the possibility of somebody stealing it. He probably didn't. Anyway, the placement of this heavy boulder uh, in front, hewn boulder, in front of the tomb's entrance had the very important effect of making it exceedingly difficult, just this one thing, this, just this one act, making it exceedingly difficult for anyone to remove Jesus' body from the tomb under the cover of darkness and then claim that the, an empty tomb meant that Jesus had risen from the dead when in fact he hadn't. Remember, prior to his death, Jesus had repeatedly told his disciples and others that he was going to be killed and then rise from the dead three days later. He told, he told the religious leaders cryptically when he talked about the sign of Noah, uh, not Noah, uh, Jonah, so here we go, the sign of Jonah, that he would be three days in the belly of the whale, you know, not in the belly of the whale, but in the, in the tomb uh, represented by the belly of the whale and then uh, rise again. So even if even if they didn't hear rumors from anybody else, they could have discerned and probably did discern from what Jesus said, the sign of Jonah, that uh, that he was uh, predicting his own resurrection from the dead. And by this time, again, they, they had certainly figured it out one way or the other, as is evident from the text, verse uh, 62 and 63, 63 in particular. So, so the placement of this large stone, again, in front of the entrance of the tomb, serves as one, not the only one, but one significant argument against the skeptics' claim that Jesus' body was stolen. Many people down through the ages have posited or proposed this possibility, people who didn't want to believe, that Jesus' body was stolen, it was then hidden or destroyed by those who stole it, um, and then Jesus' followers who stole that body then claimed that Jesus had actually risen from the dead in accordance with his prediction when in fact he hadn't. But you see, this massive stone, this very heavy stone that's in a sunk groove down in the stone base, which makes it even harder to move such a thing, to roll such a thing away, is a major impediment to getting access to that tomb where Jesus was. There are many people in the world today who don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead bodily. They're all around us. Some of these people who don't believe in the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, are even found in the evangelical churches of our land. Perhaps even this one. Are you one of those people who doesn't believe, really, in your heart that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead? If you don't, you're not a Christian. It's an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. The Christian faith sinks, uh, you know, stands or falls on the basis of that doctrine and a few others as well. But that's that's a key Christian doctrine that's non-negotiable for God. You got to believe it, or you don't. You don't have a savior that's going to that's going to rescue you in the day of of God's judgment. So then, if you're a skeptic, and maybe you're out. They're remotely listening, and you're a skeptic of Jesus. Uh, the Bible's claim that Jesus rose bodily, not just spiritually, or not spiritually, but bodily from the dead. You need to consider what I've just said about that massive stone in front of that uh, tomb, and what I'm about to say now in my second point. And that is this. The actions not only of Joseph of Arimathea, but also of Jesus' religious enemies helped prevent the possibility of Jesus' resurrection being faked. 
we look at verses 62 to 66 to find this. Specifically, which enemies am I talking about? I'm talking about the chief priests who were Sadducees, by the way. They were from the Sadducean line, or Sadducean sect, um, and the Pharisees. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees, uh, who were uh, populated the uh, Sanhedrin. And their actions following Jesus' death Inadvertently, they didn't mean to do this, but actually helped prevent the possibility of Jesus' resurrection being fake. What'd they do? Well, now, by this point, okay, so Jesus is, Jesus is, um, dead. And they have scored a huge victory, uh, in their efforts to restore, and this is, this is their, what their whole goal was about, by the way. They've gained a huge victory, victory in their efforts to restore, to take back, if you will, the emotional hold that they had uh, once had upon the Jewish people prior to Jesus' pesky arrival on the scene. He, of course, stole the hearts of, of many of the people away from the religious leaders and caused them to be less and less loyal to the members of the Sanhedrin. And the members of the Sanhedrin didn't like that, to put it mildly. They hated him for it. They wanted power, and power required that the people look to them and think that they are uh, God's representatives on earth and must be obeyed. Now Jesus is dead. The enemy is dead. They finally figured out a way to arrange that with the help of the Romans, thereby silencing for good Jesus' claims to be the promised Messiah of Israel. And while his execution was indeed a great coup for them, they were not out of the woods yet, as we say, for two reasons. First, because remember, Jesus had made that prediction that he would rise from the dead within three days of his death. That pesky prediction. And they were all ready aware of that prediction, as was indicated by uh, verse uh, 63 and 64. So, Jesus had made this prediction. It could be falsified on the fourth day, right? It could be proven to be false on day four, but not day three. By day three. Or by the end of day three, actually. But the second reason they were not out of the woods yet, in terms of regaining the loyalty of the people um, and the... uh, uh, admiration of the people, is because some of Jesus' more fanatical followers might actually try to turn their loss, Jesus' death, into a win for them by attempting to orchestrate a fake resurrection of Jesus and then claim that he'd actually been raised bodily from the dead. Notice, let me read verses 63 and 64. Uh, I'll start in verse 62. Now on the next day, uh, which is one, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the uh, Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise, I am to rise again. Therefore, speaking to Pilate, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Notice the concern that these religious leaders have about the attitudes and the thoughts of the people. They say, uh, and say to the people, it's the people's that they're concerned about, what the people are thinking. And then he says, notice, if this happens, if uh, they steal him away and say to the people he's risen from the dead, the last deception will be worse than the first. What is the first deception of which he's, to which he's referring? He's referring to Jesus' claim, while he was alive, to be the promised Messiah, uh, promised in the Old Testament scriptures, the Savior of the world. That was the first deception. But the second deception that they're referring to there uh, in that quote is a reference to the possibility that the people will end up believing that Jesus rose from the dead as a result of an empty tomb hoax 
perpetrated by some of his followers. That's the, their concern, is an empty tomb hoax being successful, successfully perpetrated so that people go, he rose from the dead, he said he was going to and he did. And these men, these evil men, were absolutely correct when they said the last deception will be worse than the first because of what William Hendrickson, the way he puts it is this. He says, a man will have more faith in a person whom he regards as having first died and then risen again, thereby proving his greatness, than in one who has not yet died but claims to be the the Messiah. Hendrickson is absolutely right. This would be a worse problem if people actually, who have now seen Jesus dead on the cross, actually believe that he actually comes back to life. They would be even more enamored with him, more committed to him, and less enamored and committed to these guys. That's putting it mildly, of course. So they're terrified that this could happen. It's still Friday. So, what do they do to help prevent the possibility, inadvertently, of Jesus' resurrection being fake? Well, they ask Pilate to post guards uh, at the tomb of Jesus for the next three days. Pilate agrees to the request. It says in verse 65, and I'm not reading the way the New American
the Lord's Supper, like uh, the other holy ordinance that Christ instituted, uh, baptism, um, we believe the scriptures teach that this holy ordinance, uh, both of them, are signs and seals of the covenant of grace that God made with Christ uh, as the second Adam and in him with all the elect as his seed, quoting there from the larger catechism. Um, it is a sign of the covenant. First and foremost, it is a sign of that covenant. Uh, it's a sign, uh, in, uh, or a symbol, if you will. It symbolizes the broken body and the shed blood of Christ through the elements themselves uh, and their handling um, by myself. But it's not just symbolism. It is symbolism, but it is more than mere symbolism. Um, it is also, the Bible makes it clear to us, anyway, that it is a seal of that covenant. It is a guarantee uh, that the promises that God has made in that covenant to Christ and to us uh, through our union with him, that <clears throat> though the, it's a guarantee that those promises are uh, firm, that they will never be retracted, that they can be trusted in with our very lives, that we can trust in those promises regarding Christ and uh, what we have in him. Um, we can trust our very eternal well-being uh, to those promises. And God is saying afresh, Christ in particular, who is the host of this uh, table, he is saying in particular to you, those promises, I meant them. Uh, and so that can bring much comfort to those who uh, sometimes, whose faith uh, uh, shake is shaken by the world and by... Uh, other things that cause our faith sometimes to be shaken in Christ. Because it is both a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace, <clears throat> we believe it is also a means of grace um, to those who rightly partake of it. To believers who rightly partake of it, it is a means of sanctifying grace. Now, the truth is, God can use the unbelievers' viewing of our celebration of the Lord's Supper as a means to save that individual. So in that sense, God can use the, the sacrament, its ob observation of it, to save somebody. But this is for believers, not for unbelievers. Participation in this meal. And to the believer, it is a means of uh, sanctifying that uh, believer who has rested in Christ uh, alone, not, not in the sacrament for their salvation. It is a means of grace in that uh, it, uh, and this is uh, just a reasonable way of understanding that, uh, that uh, God, it's called the, the cup of blessing, Paul calls it, uh, the cup that is uh, served in the Lord's Supper. And it, it blesses. It, well, it doesn't bless. The Spirit blesses uh, as we partake of it. And uh, he blesses those by und undoubtedly uh, comforting us uh, through the promises of the gospel uh, as we uh, ponder them and realize that what God is doing and confirming those promises, uh, it uh, obviously can provide strength to uh, resist temptation that we're struggling with. It can provide um, um, motivation to greater obedience as we uh, see afresh the love of Christ for us and what he did in the cross that this meal points us to, uh, the suffering that he endured in our place, etc., etc., uh, God, the Holy Spirit, can do what he wants, but the point is he can do good in your life and mine as we partake of this meal. The meal is not for everyone. It, uh, you need to be a Christian. You need to know that you're a Christian. Um, and you have to be a member in good standing, a baptized member in good standing of some evangelical church. You need to be baptized because um, baptism is a sign that the evangelical church has, has, uh, uh, has recognized your profession of faith, even if it's not our church. It has to be a church that believes and teaches that Jesus is the only way to be forgiven, and it's only by faith, not by anything else, that you are united to Jesus in a saving way. If your church teaches that and you're a baptized member of that church, uh, you are welcome to partake with us. You don't have to be a member of this congregation, but you do need to be a member in good standing of an evangelical church. However, <clears throat> if people that should not approach this table or partake are not only non-Christians, but also people who are 
cherishing some sin in their life. Uh, we are told in Proverbs that if we uh, uh, regard sin in our hearts, the Lord will not hear. Cherish sin in our hearts, and some translations put it exactly that way. The Lord is not going to be pleased with you if you are if you are defying His will. If you have some sin in your life, you know it's there, and you are unwilling to deal with it because you like your sin. First of all, you're probably not a Christian, or you certainly have no right to think you're a Christian if that's the case. Uh, but if, even if you are, you're a very foolish Christian, and uh, God disciplines those whom He loves, and you're in grave danger of that discipline. Uh, and sometimes it can be pretty painful. Uh, but the point is, you should not take. You need to stay away if that describes you. And use this time as uh, to ask God to soften your hard heart. However, if you're wrestling with sin, if you're struggling with it, um, you, but you want to be rid of it, um, this is very definitely what you need uh, to help you in that struggle, uh, because it is a means of grace to such people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this means of grace that you have provided us with. Um, thank you that uh, it's it in, involves our, our senses, touch and taste. Uh, 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 and in that sense, it's uh, more tangible and helps our, our, our faith when it is weak. We pray that you would uh, take these uh, elements and set them apart from their common use uh, under the holy purposes for which we are now about to use them, and that you would help us to, by faith, feed upon Christ, uh, his body and blood, uh, spiritually, feed upon him in our hearts, and that we might be blessed and that you might be honored as we look to you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, uh, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering in his name. Now give this bread to you. And he said, Take, eat, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please wait until we're all served, and then we will eat together and likewise with the wine. Oh, I will. The elders want to be served too. The body of Christ was broken for you. Take and eat.
In the same manner, he also took the cup, and having given thanks, as we've already done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, in my this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Again, please wait until we're all served. There is grape juice in the very middle for those who can't in good conscience uh, partake of the wine, but we uh, would suggest you partake of the wine. There's reason for that. The blood of Christ was shed for you. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, how grateful we are for what you have done for us. That you would take our place, act as our substitute before the bar of divine justice. Why you would do this is beyond us. We are rebels, Lord, by conception and birth. But we are just so grateful that you have uh, done what you've done and that we are the beneficiaries. Lord, we ask that you would help us to better serve you in the coming days and weeks ahead than we have up to this point. We ask that you would use our partaking of this meal as means to make us... Um, more like you in our thoughts, words, and actions. We pray that you would help us in our witness, that you would give us courage, Lord, to share the glorious news of the gospel uh, with others who don't know you. Would you please uh, help us to have a burden for them, uh, a longing to see uh, you use us to reach lost souls, and would you please Provide us with opportunities and give us the words to say. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And let me just say this.